Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel Vickery. So Rachel is a human behavior and high performance consultant. She's a qualified physiotherapist and a former international gymnast. She's worked with breathing from a performance perspective for over 20 years and has a unique perspective on how breathing impacts not only arousal state, but physical performance, biomechanics and physiology. So who better today to discuss how you can use breathing to increase performance than Rachel. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Rachel onto the show. So Rachel, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you very much for joining us. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? Sure. So um, my name is Rachel Vickery. I'm a Kiwi, so from New Zealand, originally live in Australia. So I've been in Australia since 2003. Originally qualified as a sports physiotherapist. Um, so worked with a lot of national and international level athletes as a physical performance uh, physiotherapist. Um, but along the way, did a lot of work with breathing-related issues, um, with again, with, with elite athletes predominantly. Um, have gone off and studied a whole lot of other things along the way, um, you know, exercise physiology, sport biomechanics. Um, these days I work a lot more with people in high-pressure, high-stakes environments, so have worked uh, in MBA, um, worked with elite military, trauma surgeons, anywhere where it's high-stress and high-stakes. Breathing is a small component of that, but my work has very much expanded, you know, a lot broader than that. Um but I've really still, I guess, spent a lot of the last 20 years um, really helping athletes and high performers optimising breathing from a performance perspective. Um, my personal sport background, I was uh, an elite gymnast. So I was on the national team for New Zealand for six years, did Commonwealth Games and World Champs. So that was really my first foray, I guess, into the high performance world, um, you know, very, very early in life. Awesome. Awesome. So you've seen both sides of that spectrum, the the kind of the, the athlete side and then the, the practitioner side. But also moving on into some some other stuff as well, which is super interesting. And I think, like like like, like you said just before we start recording, that could be a two hour podcast. So we need to to keep that unfortunately a little bit more condensed. But when we when we look at breathing, obviously oxygen is good. Like most people got that far. But like, why is it important in sport? Yeah, I think. Um... <sighs> Many years ago, I did my master's thesis on optimizing performance in competitive cyclists by changing breathing pattern. And at the same time, I was training with some people to offset the, the mental challenge of my thesis. So I was doing a lot of physical physical training. And one of the guys said to me, how do you write a 50,000-word document on breathing? You know, breathe in, breathe out, don't stop. How do you write 50,000 <laughs> words on that? And I was like, yeah, I mean, it really is that complex, right? Um, or it can be that simple. Um, but I think there's so much around performance that's more than just the oxygen side of it so we look at things like you know the biomechanics particularly with upper limb biomechanics so um, if someone's not breathing well they're going to use all of their upper limb musculature in a slightly different way that's going to impact things like technique accuracy of technique ability for you know upper limbs to generate power or breathe um, and that becomes a bit problematic when breathing is the priority for staying alive uh, it tends to change upper limb mechanics in that sort of scenario um, we tend to have less blood supply going to power generating muscles if we're not breathing efficiently. So we see, tend to see, you know, drop in power output, um, jelly legs, you know, that inability to sort of push hard. Um, you know, situational awareness in, tends to change if we don't breathe well. So if we're a field-based athlete, 
then we may potentially miss, you know, an open player who's out to our left or right because of what changes to some of our situational awareness through peripheral vision and auditory cues, those sorts of things. Um, better decision-making, um, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of things that breathing actually starts to spill into, including things like your perception of how, how fatigued you are. And if you're not breathing efficiently, then your brain is going to get a misread on that and it tends to have you, you know, pull back your physical intensity until you feel like you've got your breathing a little bit more under control. And a lot of that is not related to oxygen and CO2 out. It's more just related to the biomechanics um, of how you're actually breathing in the first place. And that's, that's super interesting. Like, obviously, we can we can pick out loads of those different individual things you just mentioned. But when yeah, we're looking sure. at the, the physiological and, and psychological benefits of doing this, like, what can athletes gain from gaining control of their breathing. So when they've got, when they have everything in, in order and everything's under control, how do they then improve their performance? Yeah, so when I did my master's thesis, and this was research, and, and, and obviously when you do research, the only thing you can do is change one variable, right? That's not the reality of optimizing performance in the real world. Um, but we did a couple of tests. We did a 20K time trial, um, and we did a peak power incremental test. And, you know, and, and these guys were guys that were competitive cyclists, but they weren't elite or professional, you know. Um, and we we saw a, a drop in time trial time by one and a half percent. We saw an increase in peak power by close to three percent. You know, we saw a drop in breathing rate across that by 13 percent. Um, you know, increased depth of breath by about 10%. And the RPE for both their breathing exertion and their leg exertion changed by anywhere from sort of 25 to 30%. So in summary, what we saw with that was a much better performance, you know, better power output, being able to push faster, but optimising all of those other sort of markers that we would see with, with performance at the same time. Um, so the other thing that happens too is if you've got better breathing control when you're when you're pushing hard, your thought processes tend to follow your breathing. So if your breathing is erratic and out of control, you tend to go more into that dark, deep um, hole, you know, around this sucks, this hurts, I'm not sure if I can keep going, you know, those erratic kind of thought processes. The more controlled your breathing pattern is in those scenarios, the calmer your mind is. So that ability to find that flow state um, tends to happen a lot more because you're not so focused on oh my god I can't breathe you know I can't get air into my chest the sucks and, and and of course that becomes the the priority with that I think certainly a much better recovery so whether that's recovery in a training session between sets so if you're doing a sort of uh, you know if you're a swimmer and you're doing repeats on a time or if you're a running athlete and you're doing running repeats bike repeats those sorts of things the ability to recover faster so you can push harder each interval um, and then of course recovering better off the back end of a training session, um, significantly optimised. What we see in some of the field-based teams that we work with is that they the players tend to have more, you know, gas in their lungs and power in their legs in the back end of a very tough game. So you might not see a difference in a team that has good control versus a team that doesn't in the first half or even in the first three quarters, but certainly those changes start to happen because someone's been able to keep their heart rate lower through the whole game, you know, their mind is a lot more focused, lactate profile, you know, is a little bit more un under control, those sorts of things. And when you're, when you're looking at what good breathing is then, because obviously this sounds super mm -hmm. attractive, right? Like I want to I implement good breathing with my teams. I want them to be really fit in the last uh, few minutes. But like, yeah. what does that look like in terms of physiology and mechanics? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's um, 
first principles 101 right so ideally at rest and, and the thing that we i think the thing that often gets um misinterpreted or not focused on well with breathing for sport is actually breathing with sport is set up by how you breathe at rest so you know often when i'm working with athletes or when i get, first get asked to work with the team it's all about how do i breathe when i'm playing my sport how do i breathe when i'm swimming how do i breathe you know in that in that sprint event or whatever it is and if you're trying to make the change there you've almost left it too late because breathing with exercise is very much an exaggeration of what you do at rest now if you've got breathing issues that are showing up with sport and it might not actually just be you know i think one of the things we didn't touch on is how does poor breathing show up for an athlete you know there's there's all the things that we can benefit from but there's also some of the things that will show up for someone if they're not a good breather full stop so if we can just briefly touch on some of those, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, crack on, please. It, yeah, yeah, awesome. So so if someone's not a great breather at rest and then doesn't have good breathing control with their sport, then sometimes that will show up as breathing-related symptoms, which you'd expect. So someone might present with difficulty getting enough air into their chest. So they'll describe that as, like, it's hard for me to breathe in. They might have an inspiratory wheeze or strider. Um, they get unusually short of breath. They might have a cough or a sore throat after hard exercise. Um, they struggle to catch their breath after those, you know, intense bursts. But often you'll also see, you know, someone who's not a good breather, it doesn't necessarily show up as a breathing-related problem. And that's where I think it gets kind of quite interesting because sometimes you'll see an athlete who just has a really unusually high heart rate um, at rest. You know, they hit that early fatigue point where you know as a performance coach, what you, you know they're fitter than what they're you know what they're showing you but they just can't tap into that or you know you might see someone lose accuracy with precision techniques under pressure so it might be a technique that they can do no problems whatsoever in training but it starts to fall apart you know when when the pressure comes on um, we'll see technique really start to tighten up so for a swimmer for example who's not a great breather and their breathing gets out of control they've got a beautiful technique with a glide and you know really smooth when they're sort of at lower pace but when they really start to get breathless and push hard you'll see that their technique and their whole stroke will tighten up and get a little bit tenser um, so you'll see it show up as sort of physical or biomechanical or recovery issues but then you'll also see if someone's not a great breather it might also show up as challenges with their arousal state you know so how do they feel under pressure they might lose focus they lose that peripheral vision that we you know we talked about before they miss um, auditory cues, so they'll forget or they'll miss a, a call from a, someone else on the field with them. They'll forget the game plan. They start to make poor decisions. Um, they'll get quite clumsy. They'll lose fine motor skills, you know. Um, they'll sometimes get quite panicky in their head and, and, and thumping heart. So so I think that the, the point to all of that is if you've got dysfunctional breathing or if you've got less efficient breathing, it doesn't only show up as breathing problems. It can show up as a whole lot of other performance issues that it can be a little bit harder to kind of draw back to oh it's actually coming from the breathing passion because it's showing up somewhere else if that makes sense Absolutely, and if i yeah. put that into i put that into context as a, a butterfly who butterfly swimmer who i used to work with many years ago now and he used to have um real problems with his words blowing out his shoulders in a race you know he just gets he just hit that fatigue point everything will get so tight and and overloaded that he just couldn't keep his power in his stroke. And he was also really prone to upper limb shoulder injuries, a lot of impingement issues in his shoulder. And he'd been treated by some really, really good national sports physios. Um, and that he, they could resolve the symptoms a little bit, but the problem would keep coming back, you know. And and he came to see me, and, and I wasn't going to treat him 
from a musculoskeletal perspective when he'd been seen by some really good musculoskeletal physios and it had failed, you know. But I took one look at the swimmer and one of the things that's really common for our swimmers is many of them are mouth breathers at rest. Obviously, they will be mouth breathers in the water, but that often translates to them being mouth breathers at rest. So he was a mouth breather at rest. He was very dynamically hyperinflated, which meant at rest, all of the air was sitting up in his upper chest and he was breathing very much uh, in his upper chest. He also had sinus issues. So what was happening for him was because of his whole biomechanics of his resting breathing pattern, which was causing him to breathe at rest very much with his accessory breathing muscles, you know, pec minor, levator scap, scalenes, um, you know, um, upper trapezius, Mastoid. it was actually having him already in a slightly internally rotated shoulder position and then when he got into the water and he was really trying to use funnily enough those same muscles to generate power and stability through the water he almost had nowhere to go um, so he actually fixed his shoulder problem by two ways getting him off dairy so he could actually breathe properly through his nose in the first place because he had terrible sinus issues related to his dairy intake and then obviously working on his breathing mechanics so he could breathe through his nose and breathe with his diaphragm at rest so that when he got in the water all of its, its accessory breathing muscles were already rested so he could actually do his sport so that kind of sounds like i know that you know probably sounds like a very uh, waffly kind of way of how do we get from sinus uh, dairy intolerance to shoulder issues but that's how I think complex and complicated some of the breathing stuff can be in a performance perspective I think that's a super interesting insight especially when it comes to like a, a little case study as to how that all comes together um, mm. when when you're teaching athletes how to breathe like if you mm. if you take uh, 20 athletes and you're going to do a session with them like what things are you teaching them to make sure that they can perform at the highest level under pressure? Mm. So in it, specifically in a breathing, specific in a breathing vertical, right? In a, sorry, in a breathing? Specifically with related to breathing, not the broader picture of performance under pressure. Yeah, it, yeah? I think, I think yeah, just perfect. for, for, for today, stay, I'd, I'd love to do narrow. the other one, but like for, for today, <laughs> no, let's, let's just do breathing. Narrow. Let's stay narrow. We don't want this to be a two-hour podcast. Um, so coming back to, I think, your question that you asked us before, before I said, how does it show up? First principles, at rest, we want to be breathing with our diaphragm. Okay, big dome-shaped muscle. It's designed to do 80% of the work of the uh, breathing, um, and it's relatively fatigue-resistant for most people um, in most scenarios. Um, so at rest, and actually, you know, before we get to that, your listeners can probably do a little self-check. It's actually just as you're listening to the podcast, actually just check in with yourself as to where you're breathing, right? And so what we should be experiencing is that our mouth should be closed, so we should be breathing in and out through our nose, our belly should just be gently going in and out as the diaphragm goes up and down and pushes the abdominal contents just gently out of the way. The out-breath should be a little bit longer than the in-breath. There should be a little pause after the out-breath, and there should be no movement through the upper chest or shoulders at all at rest, presuming that people listening to this podcast relatively sedentary, not out for a run. Um, so, so basically we want to get that's how we want our athletes to be breathing at rest to start with, right? So we do quite a lot of work with breathing retraining where we get someone to learn how to breathe in that way but in an automatic pattern. So the challenge with breathing is it's one of those things that we've actually got conscious control over but most of the time it runs subconsciously. So what I mean by that, if, if I said to you, Matt, hold your breath. You know, you could do that to commands, right? If I said to you, really breathe with your upper chest and really get that going, you could do that to command. And if I said, really focus on trying to breathe into your abdomen, you could probably do that. But as soon as you get distracted by a shiny thing, 
or after about 10 minutes, you're going to revert back to what your brainstem respiratory pattern has you breathing like, right? And so for many people, unless they've done specific breathing pattern retraining work, they will trend to be more of an upper chest breather. So what I mean by that is that they'll probably have their their core a little bit locked on and they'll be bracing through the abdomen, which makes it very difficult to actually breathe down into the diaphragm. They'll have their upper chest and shoulders just gently rising and falling as they breathe in and out. The inspiratory to expiratory ratio is probably going to be more of a sort of a one-to-one, so it's more of a breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, and there's no there's no pause. And sometimes people will be a mouth breather. Um, so that's not what we want. Okay, so we've got to get that brain stem to start to tolerate in and out through the nose, expiratory phase longer, at least one and a half to two times longer than in-breath, little pause at the end of the out-breath, very fluid, very easy, very rhythmical, not noisy, in and out through the nose. So that's where we want to start with baseline because what then happens, you know, if, if you're breathing, let's say an average size male athlete, you know, they might be breathing six litres of air in and out of their lungs in a minute. So it's not very much. But when you start to exercise, the first thing you'll start to do is you'll start to breathe a bit deeper and then you'll start to breathe deeper and faster. So, you know, again, let's take that same sort of mid-sized male athlete at at peak work workload in an aerobic based land sport, that might go up to anywhere from 160 to 200 liters a minute. So things really start to change, right? So what that means is, as long as you're breathing efficiently at rest, you've got all of that space. You'll start using your upper chest to lift your lungs from the top as well as the bottom with your diaphragm. You'll start to mouth breathe. You'll start to put more force behind the breath. But you've got ability to do that if you're breathing really well at rest. But if you're already breathing upper chest, you know, at rest, then at your six liters, and then when you start to try to go deeper and harder and faster and you're trying to suck more air, you know, you get to a point where you're pulling all you like, but there's literally no space in your lungs. Does that does that kind of make sense? It's like a water bottle that's full of water. If it's full of water, you can't put more in there, right? Your lungs are your lungs are the same. And so that how that shows up for people is then they're like, oh, I I can't breathe, and they put more emphasis on the breath in because their brain's telling them you're not breathing, breathe in more, and they just kind of get stuck in that bit, bit of a vicious cycle. So then the only option that often they'll have is they'll have to slow down to try to then be breathing at a depth and a rate that they've still got you know, in inverted commas, space in their water bottle to get that, you know, to, to, to get the air in and out. So that's why the breathing at rest stuff is so important so that you've actually got space to move into when you actually, you know, take those, take those next breaths. Once we actually start getting an athlete moving, then as long as we've got good baseline breathing, then what we try to focus, is, focus on is actually the focus on the out-breath with exercise, not the in-breath. So for that same reason, basically, is we want to be making space. We want to be getting the air out of our lungs as much as we can so we've got the space to take the next breath in. Once we start to take more um, time to do the in-breath than we do the out-breath, it's what's called a tapignoic shift, and it's a very inefficient way for our physiology to run. Heart rate starts to go through the roof, lactic profile starts to get out of control, and it's not a sustainable workload. So that's why I want the emphasis on the on the out breath it's a it's a way to also you know control the control the heart rate as well um is making that making the space for that breath we also want to ideally use a, a slightly pursed mouth shape rather than a big wide open mouth you know that's sort of i call it catching flies breath you know where you'll see someone big open mouth and nothing changes what we want to focus on is using a slight pursed breath 
because that creates a, a pressure in the airways that actually holds the airways open, so it's easier to get the, the air in and out of our in and out of our lungs, basically. So focusing on the outbreath, pursed lips, you'll start to lose that pause at the end of the outbreath, and that's totally fine with exercise. Um, but that's okay. And then, and then if it's a sport, and then this is where it starts to get okay. Now we need to be sport specific, right? Because every sport is then going to have some specificities as to how we optimize breathing in those environments. Obviously, swimming is quite different from cycling, quite different from a field based sport. Um, but the other sort of main principle is making sure you're using your rest periods as well as you can, you know, to to recover and get and get your breathing back under control. Awesome, and I think that's a, that's a super interesting in depth uh, look at it. I think. Uh, what I'd be really interested in is looking at like a, a high pressure situation, let's say uh, World Cup's in a, in a month's time. So World Cup final, uh, last minute, you're going to take a penalty. What can you do with your breathing then to make sure that your, your arousal state just doesn't go through the roof? <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Now, if you're leaving it till then to find a solution, you're probably <laughs> too late. <laughs> so do it now. So do it, okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> so do it now. Absolutely. Um, and that's that classic thing, right? Where, where athletes they, they want the shiny thing. They yeah. want the, the quick fix, the thing that's going to give you the thing now. You know. So I call it a get a get out of jail card. You know, you've you, you got in jail. Your arousal state basically has crossed a red line, and you've got that tunnel vision point. You know, heart's racing. You're feeling you know really stressed and pressured. The best thing you can do in that moment is um, do a relatively relatively big in-breath, but the focus has to then be on the out-breath, right? So really slow, controlled, just really slowing it down because your heart rate actually beats slightly slower with the exhale. It actually beats faster with the inhale. So you want to put the focus on taking as long and slow an exhale as you can. But there's two other things that we actually put in with that, and this is where it starts to um, tap into some of the neurophysiology about what happens in the two different states between sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system um, without going too, too, too in-depth with any and all of that. But a couple of the key differentials between um, sympathetic and parasympathetic is also where we look and what happens with our eye gaze and what we're thinking. So between those two states, you know, our breathing, our vision, and our thought is something that we've actually got a lot of control over. So what I'll teach someone in that moment with their get-out-of-jail get card is lift your eyes and actually look at something that's either on the horizon, be aware of your peripheral vision, do something to just open your vision up a little bit because that's going to cue into neurophysiology. It's going to turn off the sympathetic nervous system a little bit in that moment, right? That long, slow exhale, again, is going to tap into more of the parasympathetic and switch off the sympathetic. And without sounding all crystals and, and, and unicorns, having a having a gratitude thought that you've actually pre-prepared or a very um, positive action thought that you've already pre-prepared um, that is going to lead you in the direction of the action that you actually want to execute on, you know. So, so, so many of our, our athletes will have a thought process around, don't miss. What if I miss? You know, what if this happens? What You know, it's all very negative focused, um, which actually doesn't help them solve their problem in the moment. They want you want to have something that's very focused that you'll actually execute on. But gratitude is actually a lot better thought to have. So it might be, man, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to play with my team, or just something that and it doesn't have to be that wordy in the heat of the moment. But again, it taps into a lot of that neurophysiology. You know, if you're running away from a lion that's trying to kill you, you're not going, Oh, I'm so grateful for this opportunity, right? <laughs> so gratitude, gratitude and fear actually can't sit in the same place in our neurophysiology, right? So we want to focus on 
yeah, something with gratitude. So that's your Gana Jail card. So lifting your eyes, taking that slow exhale, having that one thought that you've pre-prepared, that actually can just center you really quickly in that moment. Um, but obviously the most effective get out of jail cards don't end up in jail in the first place, you know, which is why which is why I say, you know, if you're leaving it till that till that moment to trying to go, oh, I need a solution to that problem, I'm kind of screwed, right? Um, if I can put that in context for you with a with a golfer that I worked with many, many, many years ago, and he was a pro golfer, had his had his pro card up in the States and he hit a form slump and he couldn't make the cut and he lost his card and he ended up moving home um, and he was in debt. And he'd been working with a psych for about eight years and the psych had actually referred him to come see me um, about a year before he finally walks in the door. And the, and the athlete comes in and he goes, ah, oh, he goes, look, I've decided this morning I'm done with golf. I just can't crack this. He goes, and by the way, he goes, I don't really think that this breathing stuff works you know the psych's been doing it for eight years and it makes no difference and I love those challenges right I'm like brilliant bring it on I said brilliant I said how has the psych been using breathing with you for you to control your state under pressure and he said well as part of my pre-shot routine I step off the ball I take three nice calm breaths to set my state and we'll see that with you know penalty shootouts we'll see it with the big kicks we'll see you know we see athletes all around the world do that right they'll do that one or two deep breaths to set their state Anyway, so the, so the golfer says, yeah, I do three three breaths. I step in the ball, I dress the ball, I play my shot. I said, excellent. I said, how many shots in a pro round? And he looks at me like I'm an idiot. And he was like, well, 70. I said, brilliant. How long are you on the course for? And he was like, well, anywhere from four to four and a half hours. I said, okay, cool. I said, so what you're telling me is of the four and a half thousand breaths that you're going to do in the whole round of golf, 210 of them are designed to, in inverted commas, set your state. But the other 99.6%, you're leaving completely a chance. And he kind of looked at me like, huh, maybe I haven't got this breathing so well sorted. Because what was happening for him was as he was walking to the next shot, you know, and he had all that monkey mind self-talk, what if I miss, if I miss, I miss the cut, if I miss the cut, I miss payday, if I miss payday, I can't support my family. You know, all of that stuff was spiralling, was dropping cortisol into a system, you know, was ramping up a sympathetic nervous system, was actually having him breathing shallower because upper chest breathing is very tightly wound into that sympathetic nervous system because primarily you know if there was a threat to our survival we're either going to run or fight which means we're going to have to get more air so that's why the cue between that sympathetic nervous system has us breathe more upper chest right but even his his walking to the next hole his brain his limbic system was cueing him tighter and tighter with more upper chest breathing so then when he actually stepped into the ball you can imagine, you know, professional players know exactly where to position their body to execute a, a shot or a stroke or a technique or whatever. So he had practiced his shots in a very relaxed state, you know, biomechanically. Um, so he knew exactly where to position his body. And this is where we started to talk about that upper limb stuff and how that changes biomechanics and timing. But then when he'd get into that moment and his breathing pattern would change and he'd get more tense through his upper body because of recruitment of all of those muscles, his swing would actually tighten up just a little bit and just enough that the club face would hit the ball at a slightly different angle. But of course, then the ball's going somewhere completely unintended. So the guy that showed up in a pro tournament was actually a different golfer in inverted commas biomechanically than the guy that had practiced that stroke, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times on the, on the practice screen. So in terms of that performance under pressure moment, you know, so much of performance under pressure is actually about what you do away from the moment of pressure so that you're really well set up for that moment of pressure. Now we, we worked with him. He got his he got his card back. He became PGA Player of the Year, and he and he, and he did exceptionally well. There was a whole lot of back end work that we also had to do. Won't go there in this podcast. <laughs> um, but that's just that really kind of tight 
you know, way, I guess, again, of, of showing that link between what's happening in our mind, often changing our biomechanics and our technique of our actual sport because of that, you know, that nervous system and our breathing pattern that changes in different nervous system states. I think that's excellent. A super interesting insight into to how you've done that previously as well and how it sounds very simple, obviously, but it's not very simple, but uh, how other people could potentially do that as well. Um, just before mm. we wrap up, uh, I wanted mm. to touch on whether everyday people can can take something from this as well, right? So um, that doesn't mean the, the people who are going and playing sport at the weekend, that's just and any person who's listening thinking, you know what, like, You've probably been playing with your breathing as well, because I have. Like, I've been sat here going, oh, shit, oh, I'm breathing from my mouth. Oh, like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, sat hunched yeah. over. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sat yeah. there playing with it as well. So I imagine there's people listening who think, right, well, can I benefit from this as well? So is this something that the everyday person could benefit from? 100%. So especially given that, you know, just society generally, we're a lot busier than normal. So a lot of, more of us are operating under the pump you know it's deadlines it's expectations it's responsibilities it's go 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 you know we tend to for most people not just athletes again tend to be more of an upper chest breather if you're not thinking about it and then think about exactly to your point sitting over a computer you know you tend to if you're slumped and you're squishing up on your lungs it tends to force you to upper chest breathe or when you're really concentrating on something or you're listening to something, you know, people listening to the podcast are possibly holding their breath as they're listening, you know, when we're anticipating something going to happen, when you're having an argument with your spouse, you know, often in those sorts of scenarios, people tend to by default hold their breath without realising that they're doing it. Now, that's going to jack their heart rate up, you know, drops cortisol into the system, you know, get a lot more tense. A lot of people that I work with who are just in inverted commas, normal people, will often describe being very tight through their neck and shoulders all the time. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about was we do 20,000 breaths in a day. So it's where you do those 20,000 is going to determine, you know, which muscles get tight or not. The diaphragm's built to do the 20,000. All those muscles we talked about upper chest get really tired and tight. Concentration is definitely impacted by how you're breathing. So if you're tending to be an upper chest breather and you're breathing faster, because of some of the stuff that changes to carbon dioxide and oxygen in your bloodstream, you know, you tend to not be able to think as clearly. You know, you tend to be a little bit more of that brain fog uh, type scenario. Um, um, so, yes is the answer. Um, basic principles still, you know, do the work to learn how to reset your brainstem pattern. It's not enough. I'm not interested in how can you breathe. I'm interested in how do you breathe. You know, so how are you breathing when you're not thinking about breathing is the critical piece of work to be done. One of the things that you can, you know, just probably anyone can can do just as a little habit breaker, and this isn't resetting the brainstem pattern, but this is kind of the next step up, is every time you pick up your phone to do anything, do a little bit of a body scan and still pick up your phone and do whatever you're going to do, but just first step is become present. Okay, so that's the stop. You know, stop, drop, and flow. Stop, just be present, be aware of what you're doing. The drop part, drop your chest and shoulders and breathe out because you won't realize that you're holding tension through your shoulders. You might be holding your breath. Just literally let it go. So that's the drop part. And the flow part is try to do three breaths down into your belly through your nose. They're not big or deep or forced. It's just different. So bring the air down into your belly and then keep going with what you're going to do. But the phone just becomes almost like a tactile trigger, you know, because we pick up our phones so many times in the day just to actually start to check in, how am I breathing? How am I breathing? How am I breathing? And doing that little reset. I think that's some absolutely excellent advice. So Rachel, massive thanks for your time and effort today. It's been a super interesting podcast. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, I look forward to speaking again soon. Pleasure, Matt. No problems. Thank you very much. Cheers. See ya. 
And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Rachel for all of her hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it. and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Coach Academy. Now, the Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get some more great sports science information, all you have to do is click the link in the show notes and you can get into the Coach Academy completely free for the next seven days. So click that link in just a few seconds time. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be fantastic if you can give us a like and a share on social media and a recommendation to a coach, a colleague, an athlete or a friend. That means that we can keep bringing you the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport and I'll speak to you next week.